those 10 months, Ukrainian church finally understood or discovered for itself why it exists in Ukraine. Not being just sort of external voice to Ukrainian society, but being part of life of the nation, taking the sufferings of the nations, going with the people through their sufferings, trying to follow Christ's way. This experience is horrible. War is horrible. There is nothing good in a war. Nothing, you know. It just, just, just tears, sufferings, and death. But even in this context, if we are listening to God's voice and to the work of the Spirit, it may bring to the new stage of the church ministry in our context. Today we take you to the city of Lviv in western Ukraine, less than 50 miles from the Polish border. Given the current circumstances, it's a tremendous blessing that Chris was able to speak with Roman Solovy, a theological leader in Ukraine. Since the Russian invasion began in February of 2022, Roman has remained in Lviv, his native city, and continues to serve the church in Ukraine in numerous ways. In his conversation with Chris, Roman shares an update on the current situation in Lviv, stories of desperation and hope from the Ukrainian church, and the many ways the global church can continue to lift up Ukraine in prayer. This conversation was recorded on Wednesday, December 14, 2022. It's been over 10 months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and as you'll hear in the coming minutes, we have many reasons to continue praying for the church in Ukraine and, indeed, for the whole country. Welcome again to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and my guest today is indeed on mission, but in circumstances that are dangerous, distressing, and exhausting. His name is Dr. Roman Solovy, and he's talking to me from his home city of Lviv in western Ukraine. So welcome to you, Roman. Yes, hello, Chris. Good to see you again. Indeed. Now, uh, Roman, your city there has sustained great damage to its infrastructure in this current awful war in Ukraine. So can you tell me, are you somewhere reasonably warm at the moment? And, and obviously you have power because you're talking to me on the Internet. But what, what, it's like, what is it like for you at home at the moment? Yes. Uh, well, in October, uh, Russia started to use a new strategy in the war with Ukraine. So uh, before that, we, we might say that was war of Russian army against Ukrainian army, even if we faced a lot of destruction and uh, violence and atrocities. But still, the uh, goal of Russia was, was to overcome Ukraine and to uh, take it under control. But in October, uh, after a few defeats on the battlefields, Russian army started to use totally different strategy, which is... Uh, total destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure, especially power infrastructure. So in the place where I'm sitting now in my apartment, uh, October 10, I could hear uh, big explosions because just a mile away from my house, there is a power station, power plant that was damaged by four Russian missiles and we lost electricity in one second. So next day, another four Russian missiles targeted the same power station. And then again in uh, November uh, 15 and November 23rd, a uh, few more times, uh, this power infrastructure was damaged, not only in this place, but all around Ukraine and also in Lviv, very much so. So mm. since that, we have a huge problems with electricity, with power, 
like normally in in my place uh, two times a day at least for four or five hours we are without electricity that means without heating because our electricity is dependent on heating and often without water supply uh, because sometimes water uh, engines you know pumps they work uh, on, on electricity so if there is no electricity uh, then there is no water and also, and also connection internet connection and cell phone connection is not good at that time because many stations are turned off because of uh, those issues mm. but still you know we are trying somehow to make our life possible so people use uh, power generators power banks other power stations other devices to mm. keep business run and to keep life uh, running so I, a, it, I, yeah yes, i can it, say yeah I was just going to say it is amazing how resilient uh, people are in those circumstances and uh, the all the news that we get from yourself and others. Uh, it's amazing uh, how people can survive in such circumstances. And we just want to pray because we know that it's extremely cold now that winter has come. Uh, we complain about it being cold here in Britain at the moment, but it's it's only just about you know zero, not very far below zero, such as you have there in in, uh, in Ukraine. Let, let me tell our, our listeners just a little bit more about you, Roman, and and then uh, we'll come and you can chip in and tell us a bit more about yourself. But uh, Roman is the director for the Eastern European Institute of Theology, uh, which is situated there in Lviv although he has also taught in a number of other seminaries, and so he's very much into theological education as a, as a professor and a scholar. Um, he's also into literature because he is the chief editor of a journal called Theological Reflections, which is the Eastern European Journal of Theology. He was one of the editorial team of the Slavic Bible Commentary, which was published a few years ago, uh, and it was quite an amazing cooperative work between Ukrainian and Russian evangelical scholars. Uh, and in this year, just this last year, he has been appointed as the uh, regional commissioning editor for Langham Literature. That's to say he is there finding authors and manuscripts and books from the region which can be published to help the churches there. So, Roman, you span the world of theological education and Christian literature, and you're also a pastor, one of the teaching pastors in a local church there, so it's a busy life. But I think that's enough from me. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, your family, and perhaps something about how you came to personal faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, yes, you, you described my life quite quite completely. <laughs> uh, yes, you know, uh, Ukraine is basically Orthodox uh, country, was, was Eastern Orthodox uh, Church as, as main church. But uh, in Soviet times, it was different. I became Christian Christians in the last years of uh, Soviet Union, when official uh, ideology of Soviet Union was what is called scientific atheism. But uh, when I was a teenager, I had those um, issues, you know, those questions about the meaning of life, life after death, uh, why do I live, what is my purpose in life. And my uncle, he was a pastor of a little local Pentecostal church. He suffered much during Soviet Union. He lost his jobs many times. He was... Uh, taken to KGB many times, but he was, and he still is, a really great man of God. So he would visit our home and just share his face. And my parents, who knew him uh, before he became Christian, his bad behavior, when he, they saw his life changed, 
he's really great Christian Christ like character they also listen to him and I was a young young boy at that time like 12 13 years old and his witness and his life convinced me that there is God that God is changing human lives that Christ uh, came to die for my sins and when I was teenager he uh, this is my uncle he gave me a radio and I could listen to Christian radio programs from Monte Carlo from other places that were translated to Soviet Union and one evening uh, in my room uh, alone after listening to Christian sermon on the radio I uh, prayed to, to God and asked uh, God to forgive my sins and that's how I became Christian so mm. in a few days after that uh, my uh, uh, uncle visited me and started talking to me about salvation, other things. I told him, no, I don't do that anymore. I'm already saved. <laughs> How do you know? Well, I, I did what I what the preacher told me, and now I am convinced that I am uh, Christ's child, that I am saved. And since then, you know, it's almost 40 years ago, I, I follow Christ. Hmm. That's a wonderful story. I, that's a, it's a marvelous to have that assurance from our childhood or our teenage years. Uh, which is also something for myself. I, I simply asked Jesus to come into my heart and forgive my sins. Uh, and from then on, I knew that's what he had done. Uh, we just trust his promise. So thank you for, for sharing that. I suppose we, we, we can't talk to someone in Ukraine without talking about the reality that you're living in at the moment, this war. Of course, many of us, uh, many people in the West have only been thinking about this war since uh, February of this year. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's been going on since 2014. But the invasion, uh, the, the, the really desperate invasion happened in, in February uh, the, of this year. And so that's now 10 months or more um, of, of warfare. And you were saying earlier the shift from uh, basically military kind of attack to more uh, total war against the infrastructure of the country itself. I wonder if you can tell us something of the scale of the destruction and loss in terms of perhaps the the approximate number of people who are known to have lost their lives, um, the numbers of soldiers who, who have died, and we know that that's on both sides, of course, um, the number of displaced people, which is vast. I mean, the, the refugee problem is is huge. And just that level of destruction of towns, cities, homes, churches, give us some sense of the scale of all of this, because it really is quite horrific. Yes, actually, we are talking about the largest war since Second World War. The amount of ammunition that is used every day, it, it, it can be compared with any other war in the world after Second World War. So many Ukrainian towns and cities, well, everybody heard about Mariupol, but many other cities, especially in Donetsk region, in Kharkiv region, in Lugansk region, they are totally destroyed. There is no chance that there will be life again in those cities in the future. The level of destruction is so, so high. So approximately, uh, I just read some new statistic today, 8 million of Ukrainian left country and are official refugees um, in Poland, in Germany, in United Kingdom, in United States, in many countries of the world. Approximately six or uh, six and a half millions of Ukrainians are internally displaced persons. Mm -hmm. Maybe even more because uh, this is official figure, those who are registered and got the documents that they are displaced persons. Many people do not do, not do that. Mm -hmm. So we may talk that at least, we may say that at least 15, 16 millions of Ukrainians 
mm. have lost their homes and do not live in their homes anymore. 40% of Ukrainian children, so actually every second Ukrainian child mm -hmm. left its home, left their home. They do not live in their homes anymore. They live in some other places mm -hmm. in Ukraine or uh, outside of the country. Also, economic loss is just is just huge uh, because we uh, lost the access to Black Sea ports that we use for selling a lot of our uh, goods to the West and to other countries. Many plants and factories have been destroyed. Also, many houses and buildings, schools, churches, and especially uh, civil infrastructure like uh, uh, power stations uh, also. So uh, it, it's a huge level of destruction, you know. Uh, so I can say it's very unjust war because mm -hmm. in this war only Ukrainians suffer uh, from that kind of destruction. Yes, Russia is losing its soldiers, but Russian economy, cities, towns, villages, uh, churches, and, and the hospitals are still there. And we mm -hmm. in Ukraine have a, a huge damage. So yeah. I, I can't even think about how much time and money and efforts in future it would take to recover at least part of what we mm. lost already. How many people will never return to Ukraine? Mm. We have just a just a horrible demographic uh, challenge because most of those people uh, they do not have place to return. You know, I live right here near a huge stadium, uh, soccer stadium, and it is used as a as a refugee hub since first days of the war. Mm -hmm. So I would talk to many of those people. I would give them a ride from bus station to to this refugee hub and take those few minutes to talk to them. And for most of them, there is no place to return. Mm -hmm. Their cities, their towns, their homes are destroyed, and uh, they are in desperate situation. Yeah. That I mean, that that is. I mean, the the sense of trauma or trauma. Um, I, of people who have lost everything. I mean, I, I just sit here in London and I say to my wife sometimes, imagine if something like that were happening in London and at a moment's notice almost, we had to leave our home with nothing but maybe a couple of suitcases mm -hmm. at the most and then know that our house had been destroyed and everything in it, including all our personal possessions and our memories and everything else. It's something that, you know, you just you, you can't imagine recovering from. And especially if either you or your wife, your spouse is elderly or a bit infirm mm -hmm. and you're struggling with, with that as well. And so many of those who are refugees, I know, are in that condition. So the scale of human suffering is just almost unimaginable, um, which makes, you know, coming, coming to the next point, um, the fact that you yourself and a number of our Langham Scholar friends, who you know very well, of course, in the seminaries have been reaching out and, and helping uh, people in this situation to the internally displaced and to those who are moving across the country uh, to get out of the country and so on. Tell us a bit about the response that you've been making, specifically in the seminaries. Mm -hmm. we, we'll, we'll talk about the church in Ukraine mm -hmm. a little bit later, but I'm amazed at, because I think there are, is it seven or eight evangelical seminaries uh, there in Ukraine, and you've been working together, cooperating together, um, to 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 respond to this this issue, tell tell us something about that. Well, thank you. It's a it's really important question. Yes, for for most of my life, I'm involved in theological education, and we have a circle of friends, of uh, seminaries, of presidents and deans of the largest and the most active seminaries in Ukraine. And in first hours of the war, 
we created a sort of a group of people which we call Ukrainian Refugee Fund. Actually, those those are uh, deans and presidents of uh, seven or eight largest seminaries. And uh, despite each of us was in different place and faced different challenges, we decided to unite our resources and our efforts to respond to the crisis. So uh, seminaries uh, had uh, uh, dormitories, uh, buildings, resources, vehicles. So since the first hours of the war, most of the seminaries started to function as a refugee hubs. Like here in Lviv, Lviv Theological Seminary, in the evening of the first day of the war, started to receive first groups of the people who were coming from the from the east and south of Ukraine in order to achieve western border and then go to Poland or to Czech Republic or to Slovakia or to Romania or to other countries. So uh, next few weeks and months, there was a, this endless flood of the people coming to especially Lviv. Lviv is the largest western Ukrainian city and main uh, transport hub uh, on the way to west to Poland or to uh, Hungary or to Slovakia or to Czech Republic. So uh, each day in, 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 in Lviv we had 40,000 new people coming just to railway station, just mm. to our railway station. Not, not talking about cars and buses and other, other ways of, of transportation. So uh, that was just a flood of the people with children, with their belongings, who were trying to get somehow to the border. And that was time when you had to wait two, three days just to go through the border. And many of those people were desperate. They were sick. They had health issues. They had small children. And many of them had uh, health problems. So we opened the doors of our seminaries and we were trying to provide them all kind of help we could. That's mm. physical help, like accommodation, food, uh, uh, medical help, uh, legal help sometimes, and, and uh, transportation help to take them to the border. And uh, since that time till now, uh, most of the seminaries still are involved in that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I would like to say that it's a great kind of... Uh, uh, embodiment of, of, of Christ's love in our context. And it's a huge lesson for students as well. Like yes. in, in Lviv Seminary right now, two floors are uh, uh, used as accommodation for uh, displaced persons and two floors are used for the students. So students actually every day uh, have food, talk mm-hmm. to people who lost their homes and everything. It's yeah. just a practical way of learning how to love and minister to people. It's in a very tough situation. It's, uh, I don't think many Western theological students have had that kind of immersion. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm asking this question and I'm interested in the answer is because I had the privilege uh, back in 2018, I think it was, mm-hmm. of, of visiting Ukraine, as you know, and I yes. spent um, quite a bit of time at uh, the Ukraine Evangelical mm-hmm. Theological Seminary there in uh, in Kiev, and then I also went down to Odessa, to the mm-hmm. Odessa Theological Seminary, yes. uh, and uh, one of the reasons why it's so poignant for me now is that back then there, there was such a sense of optimism. They felt uh, that the evangelical church was, was was on the move. There was a sense of unity and purpose and also a great sense of, of being in favor with the government mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and being encouraged to move forward in theological education. So, you know, this, this element now of destruction and uh, of seminaries especially is, is very painful to read about. 
And yet, I suppose, you know, when when we believe that God, nothing happens that God isn't aware of, and God has this incredible ability since biblical times to bring good out of evil, which doesn't make evil good. It's still as mm-hmm. evil as one could imagine, but God can overcome evil with good. And it, it seems to me that some of what is happening in the seminaries through the staff and the students is undoubtedly serving the kingdom of God, um, being an outreach of the gospel, mm-hmm. being the hands and feet of Christ, as you've put it, uh, to those who otherwise might never have encountered people who have a living experience with Christ. Uh, am I right in this kind of thinking? Oh, yes, uh, you're right. Uh, we uh, Last week, we just uh, had a consultation of key Ukrainian seminaries and some uh, Moldovan seminaries also about the future of theological education in our part of the world. We are now establishing sort of a new alliance or a new group of uh, seminaries from Baltic countries, Ukraine, Moldova, Caucasus, some Central Asian countries, mainly Ukrainian uh, seminaries. They were saying exactly what you told, that this crisis that we are going through, it's also a chance for us kind of to restart theological education, to reflect on our mission, to make our mission more holistic, not just sort of a preaching uh, or teaching, but also ministering to the practical needs of our society, facing social challenges. You know, uh, I, I say a few times, I said a few times already that during those 10 months, Ukrainian church finally understood or discovered for itself why it exists in Ukraine. Mm. What is the purpose of its existence in mm. Ukraine? Not being just sort of uh, external voice to Ukrainian society, sometimes judge, you know, sometimes uh, just preacher, but being part of life of the nation, taking the sufferings of the nations, going with the people through their sufferings, trying to follow Christ's way, just just being the church among the people and for the people. That's a unique experience that I believe uh, will take us some time to reflect on, but I also hope that in in next months, maybe in next years, it will help us to, to develop some really deep theological reflection on the nature of the church in time of crisis mm-hmm. and nature of theological education in time of crisis. So you are totally right. This experience is horrible. War is mm-hmm. horrible. Mm-hmm. There is nothing good in a war. Nothing, you know, mm-hmm. just 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 tears, sufferings and death. But mm-hmm. even in this context, if we are listening to God's voice and to the work of the spirit, it will it may bring to the new uh, stage of the church ministry in our mm-hmm. context. That's wonderful to hear. I, I, and it amazes me because I saw some of that. I, um, you know Parush Parushev? Yes, um, good friend of ours. A great friend and, and part of our Langham Scholar team along with Riyadh Cassis. And uh, just this morning we, we were having a, a Langham leadership team meeting and Riyadh and Parush were talking about the work of Langham Scholars around the world and they mm-hmm. showed some pictures of the theological consultation that you've held in Ukraine yes. in the midst of all of these issues, mm-hmm. that theological education is is not collapsing, but actually thinking, where do we go from here? How can we respond to this? Uh, and taking steps. And that that is amazing. Again, it's it's resilience, but it's it's sustained, I think, by an enormous courage. 
And also, I think, even in your seminaries, that in some way you've been able to continue your teaching, that, that students have been able to carry on with some of their courses at least. I mean, how do you do that in the context of war? Yeah, well, the first few months we ceased all educational activities in March, in April, and maybe even in May. That was just impossible at that time because many seminaries were evacuated, like Odessa Theological Seminary and Tavrian Christian Institute and some other schools, they evacuated their staff and students to the Western Ukraine. Uh, but then during summer, we kind of uh, rethought all those challenges and we decided that, yes, we do a lot of social work and humanitarian work, but we still have our specific calling as a theological educators to do a work of theologians and educators. And since uh, September, we started school year. Most actually all Ukrainian seminaries started school year with new students, with old students. So, yes, we continue uh, have classes and courses, and um, some seminaries even have more students than they had before war. Because, you know, we have a, a need in new pastors in Ukraine, because some part of Ukrainian pastors, they also emigrated, they moved uh, to, to the West, and there are a lot of churches that need new leaders. So this is our task as, as, as seminaries to provide a new leaders and we especially value those young people who stayed in Ukraine, who yes. decided to stay with the churches. Mm -hmm. You know, I just returned from my uh, from my trip to Denver, to Ukraine, and when I was returning, uh, the taxi driver was asking me, "So, is it true? Are you really returning to Ukraine? Are you really returning to Lviv? It's war there, don't you know?" Yes, I do know. But this is our <laughs> calling to be here and yes. to minister at this time to this nation. That, that mm -hmm. God's assignment for us mm -hmm. and and that's how we we also yes we think much about uh, uh continuation of theological education we aren't going to to seize educational activities in the future mm -hmm. wonderful very practical question it occurs to me sometimes when i when i read about what you're doing and say the number the amount of food that you're distributing and goods of all kinds and everything i'm just wondering where, where do you get it from because obviously you know there's a, a lack of such things in the country, I'm sure, and people are in great need of, of all kinds of, of things. So where are the seminaries and the churches able to find the materials that you're able to distribute and use to help people? Well, thank you for this question. Uh, there are a few sources. Uh, first of all, uh, neighboring countries and evangelical churches from Romania, from Poland, from Slovakia, uh, from Hungary a little bit, and also from Germany and other European countries, but especially Eastern European countries, mm -hmm. our neighboring countries. And I just want to briefly say this, that, you know, I, am, I admire what our neighboring countries are doing for us. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. because before the war, uh, we, we actually knew that war is coming. And there were so many experts saying, since uh, November, of the previous year we knew that war is coming but i was thinking that when war will come uh, the border will be closed mm. and i was so shocked in good in good meaning of this word you know i cried many times when i saw how many how much was done by polish by romanian by slovakian hungarian and other churches and states and people even people who do not know christ did so much for mm. Ukrainians. So, first of all, we receive help from those churches. They are sending trucks with, with food and clothes. Uh, 
And also our uh, di diaspora churches, Ukraine had a big evangelical diaspora around the world, in United States, in, in Canada, in other countries. So I just visited a few of, su of such uh, churches and they are sacrificing a lot to help Ukraine, especially now when we have this uh, power crisis, they are uh, running the action which is called let us warm ukraine so every church is trying to buy some power generators for ukrainian brothers and sisters mm, that's good. and also some world uh, organizations like uh, united nations and others they also do have some programs with uh, food supply for ukraine that we sometimes can you can, can use for for our purposes too and also our people like our farmers they would bring a lot of potato and carrot and cabbage mm. and other stuff that mm. you would give to people who can use this and to cook their food in their mm. places good that's wonderful just still still on this question of of the church's presence in ukraine i'm just thinking what do you see then as the long-term impact of on the christian church in ukraine uh, is there a greater openness for evangelicals in particular to be mm -hmm. heard to have to have an authentic voice um, for gospel witness in a country which, as you say, is predominantly Orthodox, but I know there's also a fairly strong Roman Catholic presence there as well. I mm -hmm. met some of the Orthodox and Catholic leaders when I was there. Do you, do you, what, what do you see as the long-term impact of all of this on God's people, the church there in Ukraine? Yeah, Ukraine is a unique country. Uh, there is famous uh, American religious studies scholar who um, actually has a Ukrainian wife, Jose Casanova, and he uh, wrote a um, few good books about religiosity of Ukraine, comparing, comparing it with the United States situation. And there are some similarities. We do not have state church in Ukraine. And we still, as you, as you correctly mentioned, we have mostly Eastern Orthodox churches in Ukraine, but we still have Ukrainian Greek Catholic and Ukrainian Roman Catholic churches that are also strong. So we always had the situation when there is no one state church, when there is always a little bit of competition, but also a dialogue. Mm -hmm. And in, those, uh, in that situation, uh, Ukrainian evangelicals always had a lot of freedom. Since 1991, when Ukraine became an independent country, we had no limitations uh, in preaching gospel, in doing theological education, in doing social work. We were limited only by our theology, sometimes sectarian theology, you know, they, like we have to take care only about churches, the society is sinful and going to the hell, we do not need to do any social work. So that kind of, of theology still existed uh, after Soviet uh, times. Uh, so uh, there was no limitation for our uh, work from state side. And especially since 2014, when the revolution of dignity took place, we had a new law on education that actually gave us uh, all op opened us all doors for theological education with, uh, with uh, secular universities. And we started this Ukrainian doctoral program with National Pedagogical University in 2014-15 with Taras Dyatlik and other colleagues and during those uh, seven years, we uh, managed to uh, have almost 40 defenses of PhD dissertations in state university. Mm, so, we, yeah, we had very good climate, religious climate in Ukraine. But as you, as you say, uh, I agree with you that uh, the response of Ukrainian churches to the social crisis, to the war crisis, 
give us much more uh, credibility in in, in, in in society so people in society see our work like I'll give you example our local Pentecostal church we provide food for almost 600 people every every uh, second Saturday and those people most of them are not Christian they come to our church they see what we are doing to them and they ask why you are doing that you know you're not paid for this mm. you have to raise a lot of funds you have to prepare almost six hundreds of big uh, food packages that require a lot of work why do you do that and then we can witness we can say we, we love you because you are compatriots you are suffering from this terrible war we do it because we know christ and christ loves you and uh, this is just a small example and al- almost each and every Ukrainian church is doing the same work. Mm. So that, that, that's, it's lovely to hear stories like yeah. that. Have, have, have you any other similar stories or examples of, of that kind of impact of uh, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ being there in the world and then drawing people to himself and coming to faith? Yeah, I'll give you just a small example. You know, there are a few families and we, with my wife, we joke that we adopted those families. Those are people who suffered really extremely from the war, who lost everything. Their homes, their families sometimes, family members. And there is one family, they came to Ukraine, to Lviv, they came to Lviv in March, uh, after the beginning of the war, from the Kulaev region. And their homes were damaged because of shelling. They lost part of their family members. It is family of uh, older couple with their grandson. And um, their life in Lviv was really difficult. They lived in a school for a few months. They didn't have enough money to buy food because state pays just a little uh, to each displaced person. So they were really in desperate situation. Then they heard somehow about, ch- about our church. And they wanted to come and get our food package. But we give our food packages only after online registration. That's our rule because too many people, we can't help everybody. So they couldn't do that. And uh, they uh, came to church and my wife and me decided to go and visit them. And when we came to their room, they lived in old Soviet hotel in very poor conditions. We started to talk to them and in just in a few seconds, they would start to cry. Mm-hmm. And this older man would tell me, I remember this moment, Roman, you know, our life is desperate. I'm, I'm thinking about committing suicide. I can't live like that anymore. We do not have money. We can't buy food. We can't take care. I can't take care of my grandson who is orphaned because his mother died, their daughter. So I, I, I decided that one day I'll just jump over this window from 14th floor and that will be end for me. Hmm. So we did as much as we could to help this family. And now they, they attend church. They see the future. They have some hope for the future. And their life is changed. They are positive. They are optimistic. They see that there is a future for them because there is church community that is uh, open to them, that is helping them, that accepted them, even if they came from other parts of Ukraine. And there are so many of such stories, even even in, in my personal life, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we can talk about that really <laughs> the whole evening tonight. <laughs> well, but that, those are beautiful examples of, of God reaching out through the horrors uh, to reach people who need him 
Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Let's let's shift uh, focus a little bit because I did say earlier at the very beginning that you're very much involved with literature, with books. You mm-hmm. you have written a lot yourself um, of articles, and you're an editor, and uh, you contributed to the Slavic Bible Commentary and involved with the Central and Eastern European Bible Commentary and so on. Can you tell us? Why? What is your motivation, and and why why does this matter? I mean, some of us might think, you know, a country like Ukraine and devastated by war, you know, the last thing they need is a lot of books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what is the the reason why you're so committed to Christian literature? Well, uh, literature is uh, connected to theological thinking. You, you you have to express somehow your thoughts and to share it with broad audience so literature is uh, like a ship for thoughts you know there is this famous expression of francis bacon that uh, books are ships for thoughts so Mm -hmm. when when you publish books you make somebody thoughts and feelings and uh, experience part of broader human life It, it it enriches life of other people so especially in times like this I believe that publishing is important because we have many urgent needs. Like right now, we already translated, and in the next few weeks, we will publish a Ukrainian edition of the book Tackling Trauma, published by Landcam Literature. Do you and say that a, again? Uh, the, what was the title of the book again? Tackling Trauma. Tackling Overcoming Trauma. trauma. Yes, by Langham, yeah. by Langham Publishing, yes. Yes, it's a great book, a great collection of articles about uh, theological and uh, psychological response to trauma and also war trauma. Mm-hmm. And this is just an example. So many people are traumatized by war experience. So we will have a great tool for Ukrainian pastors that using that tool, they will be able to provide spiritual help for people who suffer from the war because we, we haven't been at this place before. Yeah. You know, like there was this war conflict on the East, but still that touched lives of smaller group of people but now actually every ukrainian family is uh hard by war is injured by war all of us and some people uh, an extreme level so now we have a great tool that can help us uh working with such people and uh, there are many other urgent needs like like for instance uh, refugee crisis how do you work with refugees how do you work with displaced persons how do you preach gospel for those ukrainians who left the country and who live in poland or romania and other countries uh, how do you treat people who were in army and who were injured and who came from the war how to uh, teach the church uh, local communities to accept such a people such people to their to their uh, context so mm-hmm. there are many uh, very radical very sharp uh, challenges that we need to respond and our response would be in published word because then you can distribute that knowledge those materials around churches around pastors and that would help uh, ukrainian society and ukrainian church mm. well that's wonderful because that is exactly why you're doing the work as the commissioning editor for Langham Literature in that region, uh, because you know the needs. Uh, there's no point in us sitting here in Britain trying to tell you <laughs> what to read or what to write. Uh, you're the man on the spot, on the ground, right in the middle of it. So what do you feel that you would want to say to the church in the West? And I know that uh, Ukraine you know, is part of Central Europe and so on, but thinking of the more Western churches in Western Europe or Britain or America or Australia, New Zealand, 
What do you think the Ukrainian church would want to say, or you personally would want to say, to the Western church at a time like this? Well, first of all, I would like to say thank you. That first of all, you know, for years in Ukraine, we would hear that there is no more Christianity in Europe, in the West. Mm. You know, that all those liberal Christians, they are not real Christians, you know. Only we here, we still keep all good Christian faith. There was this feeling kind of, of of superiority because we came out of suffering Soviet Union. We still hold old truths and old way of life. But uh, during the war, we could see that still there is alive, living Christian communities all around Europe. And uh, we received so much help from those communities. And uh, sometimes we see this Christian influence in European society, even in its secular expressions. Mm -hmm. I've heard so many stories just yesterday on our church board meeting about people who live in Sweden or in Great Britain or in other countries who are not active parts of some churches, but who still act based mm -hmm. on Christian values of solidarity, mm -hmm. of compassion and love. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, thank you. Second, what I would like to say is that we uh, appreciate your help, but we also would like to see uh, solidarity with Ukrainian churches and with Ukrainian nation. Mm. Because sometimes uh, people ask, why do, you, why do you care about statements, you know, public statements? Why does it matter so much for you that each, each organization would publicly declare its position regarding Ukraine? And, and the war of, of Russia against Ukraine. Because for us, it's a sign of solidarity when you are able publicly express that you are standing with us and you understand who is aggressor and who is a victim in this war. So uh, uh, I, I really would like to encourage European churches to take a stand. You know, a few days ago, one uh, dear brother from uh, one central uh, Asian country approached me during the ISAT conference with the words, I just want to be a brother. And I responded to him, then be a brother. Mm -hmm. Take a stand, you know, to be a brother is not just to be a secret brother here in Turkey, but then being afraid to show any uh, solidarity to Ukrainians in your own country or in your own uh, church union. Then be a brother, take mm -hmm. part of our suffering, stand with us. Uh, go with, when we go through this valley of sorrow. So we really would like to, to see the solidarity and also your prayers are very important. You know, very often, very often we feel so tired, we have this fatigue and we, we want to give up as every human person. But when we know that there are people who somewhere far away in Great Britain or other country every evening pray for us, that give the, gives us strength to continue our work and ministry here. And also, if you can and if you're able, all kinds of practical uh, help uh, would be very much appreciated uh, by Ukrainian churches now. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much. That's, that's very rich. I think uh, particularly the prayer aspect. I, I Certainly when I pray for Ukraine and, of course, receive um, emails and th from yourself, from Taras and from others, I often pray the Psalms because mm -hmm. the, especially the first book of Psalms um, have so many Psalms there of, of suffering that is undeserved, suffering that is um, 
strange that that in which God seems to have almost forgotten. Yes, <laughs> uh, I was just reading Psalm forty-four um, this mm-hmm. morning, and and I think when we pray, sometimes to use those psalms and to pray them on behalf of those to whom they are much more meaningful than for others of us who are in more comfortable situations. So I, I have found that a helpful exercise to do, to commend to, to our listeners. You know, yes, of course, pray for our sisters and brothers in Ukraine, but pray as God prays in, the, in, the, mm-hmm. in, in his own scriptures in, in the Psalms. Roman, it's been great uh, talking to you. Um, is there anything that we should specifically pray for you and your wife and family? Uh, yes, uh, right now we are in a situation that uh, me and my wife, we stay in Ukraine and my two of my children, they are abroad in UK and in Germany and we we miss them and they miss us and it's a sometimes uh, uh, a difficult moment, especially for me because I was not prepared to let my children go so fast, you know, in just in, in, in a few moments. So I really would appreciate uh, your prayers for uh, God uh, give us strength to go through this. And also we minister a lot to all kinds of displaced persons in our region with my wife, sometimes on a personal level, just visiting families and trying to help as much as we can. And it's also not easy because every time you come to this room, you you see sorrows, you see people tragedies, mm-hmm. you see people... Uh, desperate situations and sometimes also we feel tired so we need encouragement we need uh, inspiration from holy spirit to continue this ministry as long as as it will be needed in our country yes and indeed not only tiring and exhausting but it must be emotionally very very exhausting to constantly be face to face with people who are suffering and in need Mm -hmm. and, and how do you bear that? You know, how do you carry it in your heart and your mind and emotions? And uh, I sometimes feel, uh, you know, in the tiny, tiny little bit of of witnessing of other people's suffering that that I've experienced, and I say to myself, God, how do you bear it? How do how does God bear the suffering of the world? God who sees every person who's suffering, every child, mm-hmm. um, and the suffering of his creation. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the grief and pain in the heart of God, <laughs> I know he's infinite and he's God, but even so, and it gives perhaps something of the depth of, of what it cost God on the cross to bear the suffering of the world, to bear the sin of the world and the evil of the world. Um, so there, there's very profound aspects to um, being a witness to other people's suffering um, and having to bear it yourself. Let me pray for you now then, uh, Roman, and then, and then we'll be finished. Our loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this uh, time we've been able to spend together across the miles between here in central London and Lviv in western Ukraine. And I do pray, Lord, for my brother Roman and for his wife and for his children who are not there but in other parts of the world. Would you please sustain them? Uh, would you keep their hearts and minds stayed on you? Would you give them strength when they're exhausted, give them comfort when they're grieving, and give them all the resilience that they need to face each day as it comes? And I pray, Lord, also that you will protect their hearts and minds from uh, bitterness and uh, the kind of thoughts that are so natural in us when we are hurt and when we are suffering and uh, when other people are doing evil things. 
Be with them, Lord, uh, in all that they need, physically, materially, emotionally, spiritually, in this time. And for our other brothers and sisters there in Ukraine, in the seminaries and in the churches, we pray that you will, in your amazing providence, continue to um, build your kingdom in that land uh, and bring good out of this appalling evil, ultimately for your glory. But we pray that in the end that you will bring this war to an end, that there may be justice, that there may be an end, that there may be peace, uh, and that there may be a future for your people there. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.